How often do you find yourself thinking about the future? And when you think about the future, what kind of emotions do you have? Are you scared? Are you fearful? Are you excited? Are you hopeful and optimistic? Where do you see yourself in three years, five years, 10 years from now? What will be different? What will stay the same? What major things do you think will happen in your life, at least that you can predict? Now, of course, change is not always easy. Some people fight it. Some embrace it. Uh, some deny it. But change is a part of living, and change is a part of moving into the future. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that we studied during the month of September, Jesus says, this. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring troubles of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Now, we hear these words, and we, we know how important it is to live this way, but I think all of us would admit that we find ourselves thinking about the future. And, and there is a, a difference, I think, between thinking about the future and worrying about the future. There is a difference between planning for the future and obsessing over the future. When you think about the future, what are the things that you would like to change in your life? Are there things that you find yourself doing now that you would like to not do in the future? When you think about the future, what are the things that you struggle with in life that maybe you need to just let go of once and for all? When you think about the future, how will your marriage be different? How will your friendships be different than they are right now? How will your work be different than it is right now? Perhaps in the future you will want to spend more quality time with your, with your spouse and not take that person for granted. Perhaps you will tell yourself that you really want to invest in, in friendships and, and, and be a good friend to other people. Perhaps you'll tell yourself that you want to bury the hatchet with a family member or a friend where the relationship has been broken for some time and you're ready to, to fix it, to heal and, and move on. Perhaps in the future you will try to take better care of yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Perhaps in the future you will not let the, the words of other people control you or upset you like they have in the past. Somebody sent me a great quote this week uh, by Warren Buffett who said this. He says, you will continue to suffer if you have an emotional reaction to everything that is said to you. True power is sitting back and observing things with logic. True power is restraint. If words control you, then that means that everyone else can control you. Breathe and allow things to pass. That's pretty good advice. Hard to live, but that's pretty good advice. There's a well-known verse in Jeremiah that many of us know by heart. It's one of those famous 
Bible verses that you will see written on graduation cards. You'll see it written on the, the walls of youth rooms or children's rooms. The prophet Jeremiah has God saying this in chapter 29, verse 11. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm. To give you a future with hope. Let me read that again. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm. To give you a future with hope. Now, this is one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture. The idea that God has our future already figured out, that God has plans for us that we don't even know yet, that God is in charge and in control and everything, everything is going to be all right. And I believe that. But what we often do with this verse is we take it out of its context. And we forget the broader picture of what is going on in this part of the Bible. The Israelites are in exile. They are away from their homeland. They are afraid. They are scared. They are frustrated. They are full of fear. They don't know what is going to happen. Things don't seem to be working out the way that, that they should. And what we forget when we read this powerful verse in Jeremiah is that God is talking not just to one person, but to an entire community, all of Israel. The you in this verse is plural. It's to a community that is in exile. The people are in despair. They are to settle in and live their lives under the blessing of God. They are to know that beyond exile and judgment, the Lord will bring them home and give them peace and well-being in the future. But you can imagine when the Israelites hear these words in their situation, in exile, in Babylonian captivity, they aren't quite sure what to think. It's during the most difficult times of life that we need to hear these words. During the times when we don't understand why certain things are happening. When we don't understand why we're having to go through something when we have absolutely no idea what the future has in store for us, that's when we have to trust God. And we need to remember that in this passage from Jeremiah, God is speaking to an entire community, not just to one person or a small group of people, but to an entire community. If you guys can live together, if you guys can take care of each other, if you guys can be there for each other and support each other, then things are going to be okay. Now here's the problem that I think we need to address today. For some reason, our world and our culture has become very self-focused. We have evolved into a culture where everything is about me, what I want, what I need, what I desire. I heard a fascinating TED Talk this week by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. You can look it up on YouTube, where he says that when this current age is studied years down the road by historians, they're going to look at all of the self-help books that have been published. They're going to look at all the social media posts, all the, all the selfie pictures, and they're going to ask, what happened during that era to make people become so self-absorbed? What happened? 
And guess what? I believe with all my heart that this is where the church can help. I think Christians are in the best position to address this growing problem in the future because we follow a guy named Jesus who said this, if anyone to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Deny self. That's a foreign concept. Nebraska Senator Ben Sass has a brand new book out this week called Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. And you might think that this book is about politics, but it's really not. He says that our politics are just the byproduct of something else much deeper that is going on in our culture. Sass identifies what is becoming perhaps the greatest challenge of the 21st century, which is loneliness. People are lonelier today than they have ever been before. Depression rates are higher today than ever before. Suicides are up today. People have fewer friends today than ever before. It's been studied. And yes, all of this is happening at a time when social media has been on the rise. Isn't that ironic? Senator Sass, who I find very impressive, says this. There is a growing consensus that the number one health crisis in America right now is not cancer, it's not obesity, it's not heart disease, it's loneliness. He says social media companies promise new forms of community and unprecedented connectedness. But it turns out that at the same time that Billy Bob in Boise can broadcast his opinions to thousands of people, we have fewer non-virtual friends than at any point in decades. We're hyper-connected, but we're disconnected. Statistics now show that Americans have far fewer friends than ever before. And many would even say that they have no friends at all. At this point in history, we find ourselves in a place where we have a social capital problem. We have a relationship and connection problem. And I believe with all my heart that the church can help. The church has an answer to this problem, and it's called community. It's called living together in community, not on screens, but in person. Not on the computer or the internet, but around a table. Most of you know by now that um, uh, our children are growing up at an age where they don't know anything other than screens. We have a speaker coming Wednesday night uh, to give a presentation called Raising Kids in a Digital Age. Uh, I'll be there. Uh, all parents need help navigating that uh, in this age in which we live. Now, as a church, we want to do everything we can to address this. And as a church, we have always been about community. We've always been about interaction. We've always been about face-to-face -face connection. Uh, we're in a capital campaign, as you've probably heard by now. Two weeks from today, November the 4th, we're going to have a celebration here to complete the capital campaign. And the campaign is straightforward. First, we want to build more children's rooms on the south end to accommodate our growing children's ministry. Uh, this is where the portico share is, the drive-through down there. Secondly, we want to build a multi-use chapel above that 
that will house our 945 service and smaller weddings and funerals and speakers and other things. And then this will free up our gym for programming. And third, we're going to do some improvements to South Hall, which is our mission and outreach building uh, on the south end of the, of the property where we have the food project and AA and Room in the Inn, the Nashville Pipes and Drums and lots of other things. Now, this is what we're trying to do this fall in terms of raising funds. This is why we need your help, because we won't reach the goal without people participating. But here's the deal. What we are doing is not nearly as important as why we are wanting to do it. We want to build more children's rooms because our current ones are crowded and we believe with all of our heart that laying a Christian foundation begins with our kids when they are young. That's when they learn about God and Jesus and Christian love. That's when they learn about kindness and compassion and service. And that's a foundation that they will have for the rest of their lives. It will impact the way that they see the world. It will impact the way that they live in the world. It will impact the way that they treat each other and that they treat other people. That foundation forms who they will become. And we need some more space for that program to grow. In fact, we need a little more space for it to just catch up with where the program has already grown. We want to build a chapel because we believe that worship is at the heart of what we do as a church. We come together to worship God and to connect with each other and in a world where loneliness is becoming a huge problem. We think that this is important. But it doesn't just end with worship. We believe that genuine relationships and friendships will grow in classes and in small groups where we continue to do everything we can here at this church to build new small groups and to start new small groups because that's where people connect and that's where friendships are formed and that's where spiritual growth happens. And so if you're not in one, we want to get you in one. And then, of course, mission and service. Once you've worshipped, once you've become connected to the Christian community, once you discover the grace and the love of God, then you will want to go out and serve other people in the world and make a difference. You will want to go out and do everything you can to serve other people and to make a difference in this community. And so this church has always been, always been about mission and service. And if you want to do more, talk to Steve LaForge and his wife, Deb, who are on the fifth row right here. They'll show you how you can do more. Philippians is one of my favorite books in the Bible. In fact, leading up to Thanksgiving, during the month of November, I usually preach from it and I challenge the church to read it because I think it's, it's, a, it's one of the most powerful epistles uh, in all of the Bible. It's a book of positive thinking. It's a book of hope uh, written by Paul from a Roman prison. He didn't know what was gonna happen. He didn't know if he was gonna be executed. He didn't know what the future had in store. And, and, and it's a book of always remembering, no matter what happens to you in life, no matter what the future has in store, always remembering God's promise, always remembering God's hope. The past is what it is. We can't change it. But the future matters. And so we have to choose what we focus on. We have to choose whether we're going to get up every day and be negative and cynical and down or whether we're going to be hopeful and optimistic and live our lives to the fullest. Every single day, that's a choice that we have to make. We get to make it. But Paul writes this in chapter 3. This one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. I don't know what all has happened in your past. Maybe there are things that you wish you could change. Maybe there are things that you wish you could take back. Maybe there are things that you're ashamed of or not proud of. But I do know this. Both the present and the future matter. And the church, I believe, has a message and has an answer for a world that seems full of loneliness and despair. It's the same message that God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. It's the same message that Paul conveys in his letter to the church at Philippi. The future is in God's hands. We're all in this together. And that's a very good thing. Amen.